good to be able to be here in this context of hopefully being able to bless you and encourage you as I speak. I am genuinely inspired by what you guys at Trent uh, have built, both the physical facilities, but more than that, what you've built in terms of culture. And um, one of the things that I'm aware of is you're about to embark on the, the next kind of chapter of the adventure, going to a third service. And I know that that um, obviously requires everybody who's part of this church community to be stepping up again. And one of the things I really want to honor and I really want to endorse in you is how much you already serve how much you already give. And I just want to, um, in, in, in the course of this evening, in terms of what I'm saying, for you to really know that sense of God's well done over you. Because these things don't just happen by coincidence. A, a, a church advances in the way that you guys are advancing because there's commitment and because there's sacrifice and because you are giving of yourselves over and over and over again. And that's why there's so many changed lives. That's why God is adding more to you because you have been trusted with what you have already been given. So um, as I was just thinking about how God's grace comes to us when we are embarking on the next season of serving, when it's kind of like you've got leaders going, come on, we're going for the next big hill. I was just thinking... It's at moments like that, isn't it? You need to know another impartation of God's grace because otherwise you just end up getting a bit weary. And actually, I know for me, for my own life, it's so often about knowing something on a deeper level of my identity in Christ that then allows me to be able to step up and to give more to his cause so God's grace comes to us in a way that means we can, we can give more back to him when we get that revelation of how God sees us. When we see ourselves as he sees us, I believe it really motivates us. It kind of changes the starting point of why and how we serve. So I want to start by um, a very well-known verse. That some of you may even have it underlined in your Bibles. I know I have. And it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. So if you have got your Bibles here, do look at it up. It says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I love these verses. It starts off with us being chosen, the wonderful doctrine of what it means to be adopted by the best dad in the world. And even more than that, we get to, to enter into being sons and daughters of the king of kings. And then God says, and you are created to be part of a royal priesthood. It's really, it's an incredible truth. The priesthood of all believers is something I know that you practice here. There's no such thing, is there, as the kind of uh, the priests and the people or the professionals and the plebs. It's like, we're all priests. That's what God says. We are all 
ordained as priests. We're given a God commission. It's like we are clothed from top to toe in priestly robes, in the robes of righteousness. We know, don't we, that because of the work of the cross, because of the divine exchange that happened, we exchange our rags for the robe of righteousness that belongs to Christ. And so that's why God's face breaks into a smile when he looks upon you. Because he doesn't see all the imperfections that you see. He sees the fact you're covered in the robe of righteousness from top to toe. There's a verse in a a poem called The Vision Statement that says, skyscrapers bow down and trees applaud these children of another dimension. It's a very poetic way of saying, we are kind of of another dimension that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ as priests who belong to him. Everyone who owns the name Christ is a priest. So what does it mean to be a priest? What do priests do? Well, a priest serves God by making offerings. Those of you who've read a bit of the Old Testament will know that priests offer prayers. They offer grain offerings. They offer animal sacrifices. And then, we see this this shift, significant shift that happens in the New Testament in terms of the function of being a priest. We are no longer having to get some poor lamb or dove or something and kind of uh, sacrifice it. But actually, what we get to sacrifice, what we get to offer as priests of the New Testament is ourselves. That's the offering. As those who are part of the royal priesthood, what we lay on the altar is who we are. Our time, our effort, our energy. A few verses before 1 Peter 2, 9 is 1 Peter 2, verse 5. And this is what it says in the NIV. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in the message translation, that same verse says this, present yourselves as building stones for the construction of a sanctuary vibrant with life in which you'll serve as holy priests offering what? Christ-approved lives up to God. And that's what we get to offer as priests, the priesthood of all believers, that's what we get to offer is our Christ-approved lives. Or Romans 12, verse 1 puts it another way. Again, this message translation for this verse. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. So we consecrate our everyday lives. We consecrate our time our effort, our energy, our everything to God as priests. And I believe that when we see ourselves as priests, part of this royal priesthood, it cancels out the lies that might stop us from stepping up and giving of ourselves. Maybe lies like, I'm only a new Christian, or I've not been part of this church for long enough, or there's other people who are much better or more gifted than I am. Actually, all those lies get cancelled out when we dare to believe we are who God says we are. 
when we actually own that term of being a royal priest. I don't know if you've ever thought about yourself clothed in those robes of righteousness, ever thought about yourself as a priest. We don't really tend to use titles, do we? But what would it, what would it do to your self-perception if you just put the word priest before your name? So we offer ourselves. But exactly how do we do that? At Open Heaven, the church I lead, we talk about making our unique contribution and our community contribution. So our unique contribution is through us working out what the unique set of spiritual gifts are that the Holy Spirit has given us. You know, there's over 20 spiritual gifts mentioned in the Bible. And, um, you know, ranging from leadership to hospitality to administration to teaching to generosity to healing. And every single one of us, the moment we say yes to Jesus, are given spiritual gifts. 1 Peter 4 verses 10 to 11 says, God has given gifts to each of you from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Manage them well so that God's generosity can flow through you. And if you like, the definition of a spiritual gift is a God-given ability that uniquely fits the way you can serve others and glorify God. Spiritual gifts are not for us. You know, it's not really about us. Spiritual gifts, the whole purpose of them is to glorify God and to build up others. That's why we're given spiritual gifts. And it's, I believe it's God's genius plan for how the church works because it means we, all of us, need to lean into each other. I've never met a single person who has got all of the spiritual gifts. Never met them. I don't think they exist. God created us kind of intentionally to be in lack. That means we need to lean into the gifts of others. And undiscovered gifts or underutilized gifts are a tragedy because we all miss out. And yet when people step into their God-given set of spiritual gifts, it moves us all forward. Mother Teresa says, I can do what you cannot do, and you can do what I cannot do, and together we can do great things. And that's the story of this church here. Together you do great things because everybody gets to play. Everyone gets to contribute their gifts. So it's really worth spending some time working out what is the unique set of spiritual gifts that God has given to me. I know there's sometimes different courses that happen here, like the SHAPE course to help you work that out. There's just, it's just worth looking through some of the publications, you know, to actually work out what are the different teams, what are the gifts that might be required, and see what you get drawn to. There's some great questions um, here that might help you work out what your gifts are. I think a really good question is, when do you feel most fully alive? Because when you tap into your unique set of spiritual gifts, you should feel more alive. That's why God's given them to you. What people inspire you and you'd like to do something of what they do, who are you drawn to? It may well be that they share the same kind of spiritual gift that you've got. What are you naturally good at doing very often? There's a connection between what we're good at doing and the spiritual gift God has given to us. This is a good question. What don't you like seeing done badly? Sometimes, if you find yourself like a bit niggled or a bit frustrated that, I don't know, 
I'm sure, I mean, I know there's a value of excellence here. So everything is done excellently. But if there's something where you just think, oh, like that could just be done a little bit better, it might be it's because you've got a spiritual gift and you're not using it. And that's your little nudge to get involved. And what energizes you, uh, even though you've given of your time, you actually come away feeling energized. That's a sign that you're operating in your spiritual gift. So once you've discovered them, then get on and use them, because spiritual growth happens when we're using our spiritual gifts. And I, I take the parable of the talents really seriously. I do genuinely believe that all of us at the end of our lives will give an account for how we've used the gifts that God has given us, how we have developed them, maximized them, and utilized them for God's kingdom. And I, for one, I just want to recognize how precious it is to be given gifts by God. I mean, that's, that's no small thing, is it? The creator of the universe, the king of kings, the most high God, gives us, his people, his children, gifts to be able to use. And then, in terms of these uh, spiritual gifts that are given, don't compare the gifts that you've been given with the gifts that others have been given. It's just a killer. Comparison is a killer. And I, I heard somebody say, and it really struck me, if you get into the habit of comparison, you're essentially not trusting in the goodness of God for you. You're kind of saying God's got it wrong. He doesn't really have my best interests at heart. He doesn't really know what he's doing. Actually, when we trust in the goodness of God, then we go, God, you know me. You know who I am, how I'm wired. You're the one that knit me together in my mother's womb. Therefore, I trust you in terms of the spiritual gifts that you've given me, that they are the absolute best way that I can glorify God my Father in heaven. It's the absolute best way I get to build up others. So that's our unique contribution. And then there's also our community contribution. And I know it's said many, many times in this context because it's true that church is family. And so say, for example, um, over lunch, maybe before you came here, you had a wider family get-together, a Sunday lunch. And maybe aunts or uncles, cousins, grandparents, grandchildren came into your home and you had a, a big family lunch together. Now, I can guarantee there'll be some people in the family who'll be doing the cooking. There'll be some people in the family who will offer to wash up, dry up. There'll be some people in the family who'll be playing with the children. And there'll be some people in the family who'll just look and see what he's doing. We'll empty the bins. Now, the people who are emptying the bins have not got a spiritual gift in emptying the bins. But they're just getting on and doing what needs doing. That's the community contribution. That's because they're part of the family. And so it is with us, that we all of us, there's a sense in which we get to, we, you know, we get fired up, we fire on all cylinders when we're moving in our unique set of spiritual gifts, our unique contribution. But we also just need to get on and, and empty the bins and do what needs doing. Our ultimate example, of course, of serving and, um, and laying down of our lives is our servant king. 
And the most powerful picture we've got is when we see what happened in John chapter 13. So if you've, again, got your Bibles with you, have a look with me at John 13. It's worth just remembering, up until this point, chapters 1 to 12, Jesus' ministry is public, and his teaching is public, but now there's a shift that happens in chapter 13, and his audience narrows right down to the 12. Almost every word that goes on now from chapter 13 onwards, it's private, it's between friends. It's no longer the public season, it's now the intimate, private season. John tells us nothing more of any words that are spoken by Jesus to the crowds. It's now just to the 12. So we move out of the streets and into the quiet of a room. And these words that we see unfold, these actions in John 13, are really the farewell conversations that Jesus is having with those that he loves the most those he's invested the most into, those who are closest to him. And he's preparing them, essentially, for what's about to come. He's preparing them for what they're about to see happen in terms of his death, his resurrection. He's preparing them for the fact that the mission, the mission of God is going to roll out across the world and it's going to start with them. So this passage is the beginning of what's being called the farewell discourse of Jesus. And in this... In this chapter, Jesus gives lasting words of wisdom to his followers. And I I think, you know, it's always worth noticing what are the last words that somebody will say. Because last words are lasting words. I know, um, speaking very personally, I have a a letter from my mum. She wrote to me just before she died. And I know that letter pretty much off by heart because last words are lasting words. So there's, there's something very deep that's going on here in terms of what Jesus is saying, in terms of what he's modeling, that he knows is gonna stick in the minds of those he loves the most. So let's read from verse one of John 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, says Peter, very typically, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, 
he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Powerful, powerful passage, powerful teaching, powerful imagery that was going on. It's worth noticing that the, the, uh, the first few verses, I think, are just an incredible contrast. But verse 3 says, The Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God. He knew he was returning to God. So we, just this, this picture of all things are under the power of Christ. His lordship is supreme. His rule is complete. Jesus knew what it was to have angels and archangels, myriads of angels worshipping him, giving him glory and honour. His righteousness is stunning to behold. And yet, he put aside those clothes of glory and put on human nature to wash our feet. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He had come from God, was returning to God. So, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. He performed the lowliest job that was possible in that context. Normally a servant would be around to do it, but not this mealtime. And you could just imagine as he's taking off his outer clothing and as he's actually picking up a towel and putting it around his waist and then he's actually getting on his hands and his knees with a jug of water and a basin, I imagine the room got really quiet at that point. I can't imagine the normal chit-chat carried on. Well, pass the bread, please, John. That, that, I mean, that just wouldn't have happened. There just would have been this kind of like shock, awkwardness, just the, the, the weight of the moment. Would it, I imagine it went really, really quiet as they just watched Jesus perform a task that would have gone beyond everything that they, they would normally have been able to have comprehended. Don't forget the feet of uh, these guys. It would not have been a pleasant job. Unsurfaced roads, hot climate, animals the main mode of transport, they poo. I mean, this is not a good job. This is, this is grim. It's, the equivalent, the equivalent for us would be something like inviting someone we really, really respected around for dinner. Maybe, I don't know, uh, the MP of Nottingham. If you do, I don't know. <laughs> or, or our boss. Or, you know, a well-known Christian leader or speaker. And then, as dinner comes to an end, they then ask where the bleach and the toilet brush are because they would like to go and clean your toilets. I mean, you just feel so awkward. 
But this is, this, is, this is Jesus blowing the minds of his disciples and saying, this is what I've done for you, your Lord and your teacher. This then is what you should do, one for another. This was humility and this was servant-heartedness in a way that was actually hard to watch. And I wonder almost, in the same way it would have been hard to watch Jesus play that, that role of the servant boy, it would equally have been as hard to watch the ultimate demonstration of humility and servant-heartedness when Jesus was stretched out on the cross. So he finishes, he's standing there with a filthy towel, a basin of muddy water, and says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. He unapologetically and without any ambiguity says, whoever calls himself a follower of mine is called to be a towel bearer. That's it. It's called to be a servant. He says, I want it to be a distinctive characteristic of people who bear my name, both now, the 12, but then also in the ages to come, all around the world. You wonder, you know, at times was Jesus able to look ahead and see the church rolled out across the world, across the ages, and saying, I want a distinct characteristic of every community of Christ followers to be those that know what it is to have a towel over their arm, to look for opportunities to do practical, kind, servant-orientated things for one another. He says, if foot washing is not beneath me, it's not beneath you. And then he goes on that very last verse in verse 17, if you do these things, you'll be blessed. And Jesus is saying, it's, it's the topsy-turvy kingdom, isn't it? We give our lives away, and then we find we've gained life. We give our time, our effort, our energy away to others, and then we find we've been built up, and we've been blessed. Sometimes we get into our heads that the main way to get blessed by God is to encounter his presence in amazing worship, which is amazing. And, uh, or we get blessed through a prophetic word, or we get blessed through a, a stirring talk. But actually, there's a deeper blessing in what we give than just what we receive. There's a quote from a guy called Albert Schweitzer, and he says, the only ones among you who will be really happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. So I want to just encourage you as a church in your servant-heartedness. Say perhaps for some of you who regularly come to the evening service, if you know you've got some capacity to be able to serve at the new morning service, then why not think about that? To be to others what others were to you when you first came. To meet the need and ultimately to be the priests that you're called to be.